check is good. That sounds great. And welcome to the West Ark odd class, the auditorium class. And you may be used to seeing Daniel Tigner here in this role. And uh, Daniel is away. And so I, after talking to him and some others, I decided to cover the Sunday morning spot. And the spot that we're covering this morning ties into our, our Sunday morning series on the table. Now, if you go back to the YouTube channel, if you uh, look through the beginning of this year, we've done a two-part series on the Word and the table. Uh, they, they're independent, but they are related, and I hope that comes out pretty clearly this morning as well. But I had some questions about the Lord's Supper and Passover, and what is the relationship between these? Uh, you, you have questions then that come up naturally when you, when you uh, start to consider that. For example, if they had unleavened bread on the table, to what degree must we ensure that we have unleavened bread on the table? Uh, is it just preferable? Is it required? What about the, the wine? Uh, does it have to be fermented or unfermented? Oh, a lot of people don't ask that question anymore, but I, I assure you that's been an issue at times and places. The number of cups has been an issue in many places. Some may remember that, some may not. Passover is definitely the basis, and it's the origin of what we now call the Lord's Supper. But how does this Lord's Supper go from being the Passover to the Lord's Supper? Because they, they, have, a, they have a diverging ancestry at some point. They, they branch off because Passover still continues. In, in fact, Passover in the Jewish world will be April 15th of this year. That's when it will begin. And then it's followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it is the, it is the first of, of three major um, rituals in the history of Judaism. So, what do we make of all of this? And what can we make of all of this? Well, I say we can make about uh, 45 minutes worth of uh, interesting material out of it. That's what we'll do. Let me get my remote so I can control the screen. And this is my morning coffee, which is not part of the table. So, L'chaim. Anyway, um, we're going to start in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is where we read the account of the Passover and the instruction of the Passover. Uh, let's read it and then we'll comment. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now let me make a quick comment here. They are marking time according to this event that we call the Exodus. So not only does it create a festival, it actually starts out their calendar. Uh, one of the things that we need to understand is that from the, from the Hebrew perspective, 
Passover is the core event. Just like the cross and the resurrection becomes that for us, Passover is the core event because that's where Israel's history, quite literally in their calendar, begins and and that's where God saves and redeems His people. All the other stuff like creation, oh yeah, creation, that's just background. We may want to say, oh, that's the most important event, or we wouldn't be here without it. Well, that's true, we wouldn't be here without it, but Passover makes the continuance of the creation, including ourselves, hopeful, and it gives it meaning. All right. God says, tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. That's an intact lamb. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. We're going to come back and define what that is. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a solemn assembly, and on the seventh day, a solemn assembly. No work shall be done on those days, only what everyone must eat. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought you, brought your companies out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout your generations as a perpetual ordinance in the first month from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day you shall eat unleavened bread. 
For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether an alien or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your settlements. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a a bunch of of hyssop. That's like a, a plant. They're making a brush out of it, basically. Dip it in the blood that's in the basin. Touch the lintel. That's the sides. Or the top. And the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised. You shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt, but he struck down, when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down in worship, and the Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So, we have our basis for Passover here in Exodus 12. Passover will be commented on many times from this point on. Uh, You'll find a a follow-up in Leviticus. You'll find a follow-up in Numbers chapter 9. Passover is reinstituted when Solomon builds the temple. It is reinstituted when Josiah discovers the law. It is brought back and revived when Ezra brings the exiles back to Jerusalem. And every time that happens, it develops a little differently because the context of Passover is different, but the meaning of Passover always remains the same. So let's break it down, what Exodus 12 has instructed us. What are we doing at Passover? Well, we're eating. And there's some specific instruction because the meal has significance. It's a lamb. Or did you notice? It could be a goat. Later on, when the royalty is involved, and you know Israel has no royalty at this point, but when there is a house of David, for example, in Ezekiel 45, there will be sacrifice of other animals, including bulls. And so those sacrifices will be part of what goes on around Passover. They're not the core, but they're part of what gets brought in there's the bitter herbs that's mentioned and then there's the unleavened bread and I would encourage you to think of unleavened bread as one word because it is in Hebrew in English we have to say unleavened bread because we could have leavened bread you could have focaccia bread you could have sourdough bread we have so many breads we don't know what to do with it all here they have a lot of different bread too made of different grains but there's one word for unleavened bread, we're going to get to that. The other interesting part is notice how they were supposed to take the Passover. He focuses on what, 
And then he focuses on the manner in which they do this. Loins girded, sandals on, staff in hand, hurriedly. There's meaning behind that. In other words, you've cooked your meal. And, and, and by the way, that meal, they're going to eventually end up sitting at a table to eat it. But there's another thing about that meal. If you just stop and think about it, and I can't prove this 100%, but that meal is portable. That roasted lamb, that's almost like jerky, you know. It, it, it's, uh, it wasn't prepared like jerky, but it's, it's roasted. It's, you, you know, it's, it's, it's nearly burned, okay. But the, definitely the way they're dressing is as if they are ready to go. They, they're, not, they're not relaxed, okay? They, they've got their traveling clothes on. That's what loins girded mean. You know, you've got your robes where you can walk. They've got their sandals on their feet. It's kind of odd to, in their world to be eating with your sandals on, but that's how you do the Passover. They've got their staff in their hand. They're ready to travel, and they're going to eat this quickly because God's getting ready to change things. Now, the why of it all is mentioned as well. So that in generations in the future, when the children ask, what's this all about? We tell them the why story. God spared us to save us from Egypt. We do this every year so that we remember that, and then we explain it to our children. Now, just like our Lord's Supper is a remembrance This Passover was a remembrance. It's a remembrance that doesn't ask us to recall events that we may have participated in. Because they, like us, eventually uh, encounter generations that were not there, but they still own this story as if they were. You and I do that with the Lord's Supper. None of us recall being there that day that Jesus was crucified. None of us recall the visits that Jesus made to the 500 and to his disciples. But we own those stories and in our remembrance, we encounter the presence of the living, reigning Jesus even today on the Lord's day, the Lord's Supper. We even sing songs about it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You know, if you stop and sing that song too slow, somebody's going to go, no. But you've got to keep up with the song, and then sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble. In other words, it's drawing us into that experience of that. Well, that's what Passover did. It drew them into the experience of what their ancestors had gone through. It's the perpetual ordinance. Now, in this Passover meal, the Passover meal, the core of it itself, are these three things, the lamb, the bitter herbs, and the unleavened bread, or as we're learning to say, unleavened bread, one word. The lamb, there's instructions, it's roasted whole, you eat it together, the blood of it marks the door of the house, so everybody's dressed up in their traveling clothes and they come together, and there's even instructions that encourage people to be together. Because what if, what if you can't eat a whole lamb or come up with a whole lamb? Well, then you get together on a lamb. And so there's an eating together. We're traveling in groups. We're traveling in, in companies. Passover is a traveling holiday. 
With the unleavened bread, now, there's, there's, there's a little more instruction, and this gets interesting, and this probably has more to do with our Lord's Supper. Because on the lamb part, we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's described throughout Scripture. John will even say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Which, the Passover lamb wasn't that same lamb, but lambs figure into the sacrificial ritual of Israel. Jesus now is that sacrifice once and for all. Every time you and I do the Lord's Supper, Jesus does not get sacrificed all over again. That does not happen. We don't don't mentally or spiritually or cosmically somewhere have to, oh, we got to go through all this again. If all of us would just stop sinning, Jesus would have to stop stepping up to the cross every Sunday. Well, he doesn't. Scripture is very clear on this. Hebrews. He died once for all, for all time. That sacrifice is, is done. Now he lives, risen. He bears the marks of the sacrifice. He bears the marks of the cross, but he lives beyond it. Okay, let's get to the unleavened bread. There's a process here. First, you have to get rid of the leaven or the leavened bread, the leavened food. You make and eat, then, unleavened bread, and then you have this seven-day festival with two assemblies on the first day of the first of that seven-day period and the seventh. It's like you get two special Sabbaths. So, depending on when Passover falls, you have the seven days afterwards that make up the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Passover is the meal. The Festival of Unleavened Bread is what attends after it, okay? Um... You'll see those, and you'll think, well, wait, are these two different things? Well, the answer is yes, but no. You never have Passover one month and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread at some other month. You don't don't do it like that. Now, there is an exception in in Numbers 9 where you can have a second Passover, but we'll get to that in a bit. Let's talk about this unleavened bread. Leaven is not yeast. I put that out there at Facebook. Boy, I thought I'd have people in here with signs protesting. I even owned it. I was stirring up some controversy. What do you mean leaven's not yeast? I'm one of those change agents. You know, I'm one of those. I'm I'm liberal preacher. Leaven's not yeast. No, leaven's not yeast. That's a technicality. And let me explain. Yeast is a leavening agent, obviously. You know that. You know, some of you know more about that than I do, okay, if you've ever made bread. I'm asking my wife. She's the chef in our family. I'm like, okay, so you make bread. You know, take me to the steps. What do you do? And she says, well, you let it rise. I said, okay, so when you make unleavened bread for our communion, do you, you know, how do you do that? Uh, do, you, do you let it rise? No, I just mix the ingredients together, throw it in the oven, and it kind of comes out like a pie crust. I'm like, okay. I said, well, how long do you let it sit there? Oh, not, not very long at all. Okay, okay. Then I go back and I, I said, now, now you're going to make the bread that's puffy, so how do you do that? Oh, well, you know, I throw the Fleischmann's yeast packet into it, let things sit there, starts to bubble up, you know, and foam a little bit, and blah, 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 you know, and it just, it just, it just pops up, you know, and it gets all puffy. All right. First of all, gang, we've got to think like an ancient Let's go back in our mental time machine to 4,000 B.C. We're living in Egypt. 
We know something about yeast, or we know something about fermentation, because we've been making bread, and some Jake Leg found out that, that, you know, he let that stuff stand too long, and it makes this kind of uh, watery stuff that when you drink it, well, you get happy, you know, and, and, and he's starting to call it beer. What is going on here? What is all this? Well, in ancient Egypt, we think that that's just some sort of natural process brought to us by the gods. That's paganism. And so we're not really thinking about it. No one's going to be using the word yeast because yeast is an old English word. In fact, it's an old English word that does not mean microorganism. It doesn't mean leaven. It means froth. Or, we get another English word out of it, gist. The gist of it. You know, give me the gist of this Passover stuff, preacher. Do we have enough time? Give me the gist of it. That's that stuff on the top. That's that stuff that you just skim off. That's that stuff that you can pour off and make other good things out of. That's where you get yeast in the ancient world. That's where you get leaven in the ancient world from these processes. You have to cultivate it. You don't just go and open up a packet. Now, we tend to think of microorganisms because... Thanks be to God, we live on this side of a bloke named Louis Pasteur, who in 1857 found out that there's these little fungal microorganisms that are just floating in the air everywhere, and they get into our bread that we leave laying out, and they do their microorganism thing. You know, they, they basically, they... they they eat and they belch and they, you know, and all that and they do that. And it makes that stuff puff up and they grow. And we're like, wow. Now, some, they do that in wine too, but then bacteria can also get in there and that's bad. And Pasteur figured out how to get the bacteria out, but let the little yeasties do their thing. That's the process that Louis Pasteur figured out what's going on on an unseen level. The ancients would simply call that fermentation. If you and I are going to think like ancients, we need to stop thinking about microorganisms and think about the process. So when we talk about leaven, leaven is the results or the product of a process. Um, then we need to think like, I hope that makes sense, by the way. I hope that makes sense. It's a process. You, you, you notice this. It's, it's sort of like saying it's cooked and it's uncooked. Uh, you take something uncooked, you cook it, now it's cooked. You take something unfixed, you fix it, now it's fixed. If you just leave bread out, it will rise. And the difference between leavened bread and unleavened bread for the ancients is whether or not you've allowed it to ferment. Now the fermentation and the yeast just comes from everywhere. We tend to think about, okay, what ingredients am I putting in this? Change the recipe. They don't recipe this. It's just, hey, leave this be, and it will become what it needs to become. It's kind of like aging beef. <laughs> if you go to some countries, and we saw this in uh, Ethiopia and especially in Guyana, they, they like their beef to be aged, which means they leave it hanging out in the air. There's processes that are going on. Now, that sounds to us like that's a quick trip to the hospital, right? Well, 
yeah, maybe. But there are processes going on that they cultivate and they use. Same way with this fermentation process. Now, we're thinking like ancients, but let's get specific and think like an Israelite. Because the Israelites have chametz and matzot. And those, those crackers that we sometimes used to use or may still use for um, communion, if you open up that box of Manischewitz matzos, those have been made according to a particular process. Now, the ingredients that are in it are essentially the same as, as ordinary bread. There might be some additives that are left out. And not just yeast, because again, in the ancient world, where do you go get your yeast? Well, you might get your yeast off of like the, 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 the water, the, the, the liquor that builds up on fermenting bread. And they would actually bottle that stuff. And in ancient times, when it came time to get rid of the leaven, that bottle of that bread vinegar or whatever you want to call it, they had to get rid of that and it was expensive. They would sell it to somebody and then they could buy it back after Passover. You know, that's how you get rid of this stuff. But during Passover, you can have no benefit of those things. You must get rid of it. Now, if you think like an Israelite, all bread eventually becomes kametz, which is fermented bread. It's rising bread. But at Passover, we've got to have matzah, bread that has been made so quickly it does not have time. In the 20th century, um, there's an influential rabbi. He's called the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe. He said, there's a thin line between kametz and matzo. It's kind of a play on words. But the spiritual meaning of it meant you go from being puffed up and egotistical to being humble and flat. Simple. And the difference... You know, the rabbis have spent centuries talking about when does it be go from kametz to matzo. If you've got to get rid of all this kametz, how do you do it? Some of them came down with the idea of the difference is 18 minutes. And so you'll have Jewish bakeries. I posted some of these on my on Facebook. It's just interesting to watch. They'll set this 18-minute timer. And right then at that 18-minute timer, they start mixing the dough. They roll it out. They have to roll it out with fresh utensils because if old dough from the last batch is on there and touches it, that dough has, be, has become kametz. It's not matzo. So it's tainted the rest of the batch. I mean, this, this gets interesting. It's almost like COVID protocols, but yet this is religious. And so they go through this process of making these little cakes, and they do it quickly, and they stick it in the oven, and then it gets, it gets uh, uh, crisped. And then they bring it out. And once it's crisp, it's locked in. It can no longer become kametz. Now it's matzo. But you've got 18 minutes. Now, understand that within Judaism, all of these rabbis have different opinions about everything. Okay? If you thought that any of our groups were contentious and debating, you haven't seen anything. I mean, they, they've been doing this a lot longer than we have. And so there's all these different rules and, and, you know, what is it? Some say it's 18 minutes. Some say it's 22. Some say it's 24. Some say the time isn't the problem. It's, it's, the, it's the way that you're doing it. But it all comes back to process. It's really just the same stuff. It's made differently. It's that process. So on our Passover list, Passover is a meal on the 14th of the month. Unleavened bread is a feast for seven days starting on the 15th. 
We get rid of the comets. Anything that's risen that has leaven that's been sitting out, we get rid of it. We get rid of it. Some, some of them say you have to burn it. For seven days, there's only matzah. Matzah in Deuteronomy 16 is further described not only as the bread of haste, but the bread of poverty, the bread of affliction. We made it quickly to eat, to carry on the way, because we were leaving Egypt. And that's why it takes the shape it does. So now you have this developing tradition, like we had mentioned. Throughout time, it's always a remembrance, a remembrance of what God did against the empire of Egypt, when the gods of Egypt were oppressing people. Now, this isn't just two different ways of looking at the world. The Egypt versus Israel situation is a lot like looking at the injustice between Russia and Ukraine. The whole world is united in saying that shouldn't be that way. Not really sure what China's thinking, but that's another problem. Okay, so anyway, all of that, Egypt is definitely the power that is oppressing these people, these descendants of Jacob, and God wants them to be freed. So God has to act in a mighty way because they have no way of acting on their own other than to be obedient. <clears throat> the practice will adjust to the setting of the people. They go from being a, a freed group of people who were in slavery, who were servants of Pharaoh, making bricks for Pharaoh, to the people who come into the land of promise in Canaan. They set up their cities. They set up their communities. They have judges. They have prophets. They eventually have kings, and they have a kingdom. And, and as that goes along, this ritual, this I mean, especially with the arrival of the temple, it begins to change but it never loses its core meaning. And so you see these passages here. In fact, in Numbers 9, that's the celebration of the second ever Passover. They're on the road. They're out in the wilderness. They're going to have the Passover and remember the events of a year ago, but you've got some people there who are unclean because they've touched a carcass. Now, they want to be a part of this, but how can they be a part of this when they're unclean? So there's an allowance made. You know, let them purify themselves, and then a month later, we can do another Passover. There's always an allowance made for some kind of sincere inclusion. There's a lot of restrictions about the foreigner, and then those become more and more open. It's like, well, let the foreigner be circumcised. Let the foreigner join you at the table. Um, in the Passover of Hezekiah, where Hezekiah calls for a national Passover. <clears throat> Some of the tribes were not properly purified, and Hezekiah prays on their behalf, and he says, we really want to have the Passover with them included. We don't want to exclude them, and it's allowed. And in Ezra 6, when they have the Passover, the celebration is one of joy. You can understand why the Ezra Passover could be so joyous because in some ways they've reconnected with their ancestors who were set free from Egypt, and here is a group of people who've been set free from Babylon. They definitely connect. And in Ezra, it's underlined. They celebrate the Passover with great joy. Passover is not a somber celebration. 
It is a joyous and glad celebration. So where does the wine come in? We talked all about that. We've got the Lord's Supper. You've got Passover bread, unleavened bread, bread. What about the wine? What about the fruit of the vine? What about the cup? Well, I got good news and bad news. The good news is wine shows up a lot in Scripture, and it has different meanings. Just like leaven shows up in Scripture many times, you'll hear that leaven represents sin, and they'll even do that in the, the Passover teaching. You know, we're going to get rid of the sin. Paul uses leaven as a symbol of sin in 1 Corinthians 5, and there he's talking about the influence that an inappropriate relationship in the Corinthian church has on the people. And he says, you need to do just like at Passover and remove the comets, remove the leaven. But leaven's also a symbol for influence. How something unseen, something small can influence something great. So it's used of the teaching of the Pharisees, and Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But he also uses it as a symbol of the kingdom, just like the mustard seed. Something small and unseen has influence on a whole batch. Well, wine is used the same way. Sometimes it's a symbol of joy, it's a symbol of gladness, but sometimes it's a symbol of God's wrath and God's judgment. So when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I drink, that's the cup of judgment. But it's also the cup of blessing. And in many of the Psalms, It's described as the cup of salvation. We're drinking, almost like drinking a toast to what the Lord has done. But then the Lord sometimes says, I will pour out my wrath. What you have is you have a people who are very familiar with the culture of the vineyard. And they're using these images as analogies to their faith. Now there is the place of wine actually being used in drink offerings. No one's really sure. Sometimes it seems like that's just poured out on the altar. Sometimes it's actually you drink it. Uh, there's a lot of blessings and prayers that attend to these cups of wine, especially on the Sabbath in later history. Wine doesn't have to stand for blood. Sometimes it does. But in the ancient world, again, think like an ancient. You don't need symbolic blood. You've got the real thing. That's not wine that they're putting on those doorposts. That's blood. That's not wine that Moses is sprinkling on the altar. That's the real deal. So, the the good news is, we understand wine has a lot of meaning. The, The bad news is, we have no idea really how it entered into the Passover celebration. But it did. By the time of Jesus, the use of wine at the Passover was so standard that it's sort of one of those things that everybody said, well, we've always done it that way, haven't we? See, they used to do that too. In fact, by the time of Jesus, or you know, within 200 years either way of the time of Jesus, <clears throat> we even see that the use of four cups of wine becomes standard. This is from a translation, an English translation of what's called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of all those rabbinical debates. All of their sayings that have been written down. And this was their thinking on the Passover. 
On the eve of Passover, from close to the time of the afternoon offering, no one must eat until nightfall. Now, even the poorest person in Israel must not eat on the night of Passover unless he reclines. In other words, we're going to be comfortable at this meal. We're going to be like rich people. That's what they're getting at. There's this reclining. Now, isn't there a text where Jesus and his disciples recline at the table? Yes, there is. And this poor person or whoever's showing up, and when they say even the poorest person in Israel, that means no one is excluded. We want everybody there. They must give him no fewer than four cups of wine, even if he receives relief from the charity plate. So even if he's poor and he can't bring his own food to the potluck, okay, we're going to, he's going to have four cups, everybody's going to have four cups of wine. That's important. And then the significance of the four cups of wine, we don't have time to go into it, but it develops over, over history so that even today, if you read about uh, Jewish Passover, the number four becomes Im- Im- important, and it over and over again the the meaning of the of the four things shows up over and over again. All right, you may have to get a snapshot of this one because I I, I had to do this for myself, but this is how Passover then is renewed by Jesus to become the Lord's Supper. If we assume, and we have to assume that there's four cups of wine. And by the way, our assumption is not baseless. Have you ever noticed in Luke's Gospel that Jesus gives them the cup twice? He takes the cup, then He takes the bread, and then He takes the cup. Does that mean we're doing it wrong? Because we always do bread and cup. I mean, that's the way you're supposed to do it, right? Because that's the way Paul did it. That's the way Paul talked about it. And besides that, that's the way we've always done it. So that has to make it right. Yes? No. Um, let's just imagine for a second that there are four cups of wine because here's this Mishnah that says that. And if Jesus is celebrating the Passover, and in Scripture he says, you know, where do we want to make preparations for the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread? Cup one had a prayer attached to it. It's the Kiddush prayer. The, the Kiddush. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. But the way that this would normally or mostly take place is this prayer for sanctification. That's the meaning of the first cup. And you would pray prayers over the cups. This is when they take the bitter herbs, the fruit mix that uh, is meant to resemble the mortar because Egypt, everything has meaning. Egypt embittered our people. They had to make the mortar for the bricks. And that you would dip it into that sauce and you would eat it and you would say the Kiddush prayer, uh, which... More or less, you know, the short version of it is, Blessed are you, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu. It's, Blessed are you, O Lord, uh, God of the universe, creator of the universe, the maker of the fruit of the vine. That was the Kiddush prayer for sanctification. You're saying that prayer over that wine, giving thanks. It's a lot like our saying grace over meals, you know. Dear Lord, we thank you for this food. May it nourish our bodies. Well, yeah, it's going to nourish your body. And, uh, but we, we do that. You know, we kind of have our rehearsed prayers. Well, they did too. Now, at the Last Supper, when you look at Matthew and Mark's account, there was a moment at the beginning where Jesus identifies his betrayer and he says, it's the one who dips his hand in the bowl with me. Some translations will say bread, but in the Greek, bread's not mentioned. It just says, the one who dips in the bowl with me. 
This could be that moment in the Passover. And it makes sense that it could be that moment because what a bitter moment this is. Where Jesus is identifying a betrayer. But in Matthew and Mark's account of the Last Supper, that comes first. Cup 2 is where you do the Haggadah. And the Haggadah is the Jewish way of telling the story. Again, to think like an Israelite, you have Haggadah and you have Halakha. Haggadah is the story you tell. Halakha is the thing that you do. All right. So this is the teaching. This is the activity. This is when they have the four questions. Why is this night different than any other night? And the answer, according to the rabbis, is you're supposed to begin with, my father was a wandering Aramean, which goes back to Deuteronomy 26, where you see that very thing being said. And then they would sing Psalm 113, which is called the small hallel or the small praise. <clears throat> it's at this point in Luke's gospel that Jesus mentions his desire to eat the Passover and he won't share this moment with them again until his kingdom comes. Jesus here is inserting a new Haggadah. He's saying, we're going to be telling a different story from this point on. Yes, what God did at the Exodus brought us to this moment, but now he's going to do something even greater. Jesus is infusing new meaning into parts of this. And then, according to Luke's Gospel... He gives the cup to his disciples, and it's, it's a cup of it's, it's a cup of bitterness almost, or a cup of in, in tradition, this is called the cup of plagues, because it remembers uh, what God had to do to, um, to shake off the Egyptians and have them let his people go. Notice what Jesus says there in Luke 22:17. Yeah, then he took a cup of wine, he gave thanks to God for it, and he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. <clears throat> the, the second cup is a cup of remembering. This is the most solemn of the four cups. Jesus is aware of what's going to happen, and he's pointing them to that reality. In other words, he's hinting, I'm going to be gone. What if in Luke, that cup, Luke's first cup, is Passover's second cup? I think there's reason to believe that. Because after the second cup is when you would actually get to the meal right here of the lamb, the bread, and the herbs. That's the core of it, where you would have the roasted lamb, you would have the unleavened bread, and you would have the bitter herbs again, this time combined with it just like Exodus. <clears throat> you would say your grace over the bread, you would bless it, and then you follow up cup three with the grace after the meal, which is a prescribed prayer in their tradition. But this is the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, is not the cup that we bless the cup of blessing? What if that language carried over? Yeah, I, can't, I can't prove this, but it's, it's worth speculating about. Now, Jesus takes the bread and blesses it. We read that in the text. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this description of Jesus 
taking the bread, blessing the bread. And what, what do you do there in Passover? There's a grace, a prayer over the bread. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And then he takes the cup after supper, which goes along with the meal, with the prayer after supper. But at that moment, Jesus says, this is a new covenant. I mean, the, the third cup pointed to the covenant of Israel. Jesus is saying, now this is my blood, this is a new covenant. It's kind of making sense to me that what you have in Luke is cup number two, the bread, cup number three, and then the meaning of that. In Matthew and Mark, all you would have is Passover cup number three, but that's the one that points to the new covenant. In fact, in Luke, Jesus will not use the language of the new covenant until that next cup. So in verse 20, after supper, he took another cup of wine. It's not the same cup that just he sat down and then picked back up. It's another cup of wine. And he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And Jesus is tying in all of these meanings of blood and the cup and the wine and pouring out of God's wrath, but also the blessing in the cup of salvation. Now the last thing you would do is you would have the fourth cup and you would go out to praise. We remember what you know, they did after the, the Passover. I'll never forget it. Just give me a few more minutes and we'll wrap this up. They, in the old Passover tradition, they would sing Psalm 114 to 118, which is called the Big Hallel, the praise. You would have praise. And then you would go out and you would have your watch for the night. I'll never forget this phrase that they went out to the mountain at Olives and sang a hymn. Because in 2001, when we were on that RV trip with our family, and we had uh, my children and my sister's children, and they're all very small, and we thought, let's have a family communion. And the way we thought we would do it is, let's have the kids do the, the, you know, the Last Supper, kind of act it out for us and show it what it's all about. And we're, we're taking a little risk here because we don't know Kids are so jumpy, they've been in this RV, are they going to get this? And they're going through it. They're doing a marvelous job. They're acting it out. They've got their staff in their hand, just like Passover and everything, and we're all around the campfire. We're taking the bread and wine. My mother is loving this. This is fantastic. Everybody just thinks it's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, right at the end of it, the kids dart off. And we're like, hey, 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 where are you going? And my son Wyatt says, we're going up to the Mount of Olives to sing a hymn. He got it. He got it. You had to go up on a little higher spot there to sing their hymn. It wasn't finished until we sing the song. That's the way the Passover would go. And notice that that's mentioned. This is how the evening ends up. So, we have this. On the night that he was betrayed, first cup, this is from 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is that blessing of the bread. And now he puts a new Haggadah, a new saying to it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, this is that third cup of Passover. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What Jesus does is he takes the same elements and the same process focuses in on two of them and gives it new meaning 
that will then become the Lord's Supper, not just for the ones who were rescued out of Egypt, but for the entire world. Thank you for the extra time. Thank you for your patience. And let's, uh, let's worship the Lord's Supper, or Lord, the Lord, who is the one who calls us to the Lord's Supper, on the Lord's Day today. We'll do that in just a few minutes. Please come back and join us.